0: Well, good morning, High Point. Good to be with you all. I just realized I don't have communion. Is there a cup there? (laughs) It's okay. Just by the end of the service. Thank you. See, I mess up all the time. I forget very important parts of what we're doing here today, but... uh, Thank you for all being here today. Glad to have those of us joining us online as well as those in person. A couple quick announcements. You just saw we're having a big event here today at five o'clock, five till nine, uh, where we celebrate our our nation's independence. We'd like you to all come out. There'll be free food. There's gonna be a live band, inflatables for the kids. There's gonna be a chili cook-off. Uh, So much to come out and be a part of this celebration. We'd love to have you come. We've invited our community to come and join us. So we think there's gonna be a big turnout of people here today. And then we'll watch the fireworks as they go off. From our our lawn, bring a lawn chair. We'll be meeting over on the east side of the property. So be a part of that. One other announcement I have to make according to our bylaws is uh, in March of this coming year 2022. We of course have our annual business meeting. And one of the parts of that meeting is to elect board members. There will be two current board member positions that will be opening up. Whether those individuals choose to run again is up to them, but this is an opportunity for other people to run to serve on our board. And I just wanted to say, if you've ever felt like God has called you to serve in this capacity, then this announcement serves to just tell you to be prayerful about it, think about it, pray about it, see what the Lord would have you do. And in the months and weeks to come, we will uh, give you opportunities to know what the next step in the process is. It is a process. There's an application to be filled out. There's interviews that have to be done before we actually put your name on the ballot to run for the board. So um, this is the first announcement. I have to do it the first Sunday of July, even though it's a long way off, but I want you to be thinking about that and be prayerful about it. And we will keep you informed as the process uh, moves forward. It was um, Sir Isaac Newton that created or authored the law of motion. And the third law of motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Now I am not a physicist, but I think that the, the basic principle of Newton's law can be seen not just in physics, but it can be seen in everyday life. Because even everyday ideas that people have, there is an opposing force or an opposite reaction to those ideas. For example, there is democracy and there is communism. There is loyalty and there is betrayal. There is faith and there is fear there are the San Francisco Giants, and then there are the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> For every action, there is indeed an equal and opposite reaction. Well, in today's scripture reference that we're gonna read from John's Gospel, we're provided with another very clear example of this, and it's, it's seen in a struggle between grace and legalism. So if you would turn your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. We are going to be reading verses 1 through 18. If you don't have your Bible, we will have it up on the screen, and you can follow along behind me. John, chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. The Scriptures say, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day And I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I want to uh, kind of talk a little bit about this scripture that we just read. You will notice in verse one, John says this incident happened sometime later. Well, by reading the other gospel accounts, we can guesstimate that this referred to about six months of Galilean ministry. John skips these six months in order to tell us that this incident that happens here in chapter five is making or creating a new phase, if you will, in Jesus' ministry. In the beginning... When he first started out in the first phase, Jesus encountered little to no opposition, organized opposition at all. But now comes a time when the legalistic reaction to his teachings, as well as the attacks on his ministry of grace, will they really begin in earnest. Chuck Swindoll writes this, he taught Nicodemus, performed signs in Jerusalem, redeemed a Samaritan town and healed that nobleman's son, all of which resulted in multitudes from every quarter of Israel, trusting Jesus as savior. Then like a, the first chill of winter on an autumn breeze, something began to change. Suddenly not everyone believed right away. A few began to oppose him openly, followed by more. The son of God came to the world to shine the light of truth, yet some minds remained darkened. Instead of uniting Israel, the word began to create sharp divisions. This change in the way Jesus was received really shouldn't surprise us at all because we live in a fallen world full of sinful fallen people. And at the same time, we can read in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword able to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So it makes complete sense that when the word of God became flesh, that the world would begin to divide before him. We see examples of this kind of polarization that actual truth creates in our own culture today. Well, John says that the division that characterizes this new phase of Jesus' ministry began when he left Galilee. It's when he headed south, when he went to Jerusalem for a religious feast. He infers that our Lord entered into the city through a gate on the southeastern section of the wall, a gate that is known as the Sheep Gate, It was called this because it was the gate that most of the sheep were brought into Jerusalem who were destined for sacrifice in the temple. And I'm sure that Jesus chose this gate on purpose because after all, he is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. But once he got inside the city walls, Jesus made his way to a famous pool that was not far from this sheep gate. I love this detail because for many years, scholars argued about the existence of it. Many said that it never existed, and therefore John's words in this encounter were proof that his gospel was not at all reliable. But in 1888, archaeologists found the ruins of this pool, and it was right where John said it was. In fact, further excavation shows it to be, to, describes it exactly as John described it in his text. There were two pools a pool for women and a pool for men. And there were four porticos that had been constructed with walls, with one being in the middle, separating the two individual pools. Interesting enough, one of the rocks from the ruins of that pool in Bethesda is on display in the lobby of Suburban Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, and it provides us with convincing evidence that John was indeed a Palestinian Jew who was very familiar with Jerusalem prior to its destruction in 70 AD. Well, one thing that the Scriptures doesn't say, and you may have wondered what he meant about, I'm not able to get into the pool, is beneath the pool, this pool, was a subterranean stream or an artesian well of some kind, and every now and then, a stream bubbled up, and it would disturb the waters in these pools. And it gave to a legend that said that the periodic stirring of the waters was created by an angel. The legend also said that the first sick person that was able to get into the waters after the stirring would be healed. Now you may have noticed something interesting in your Bible. If you still have your Bible open, check it out and tell me what your Bible does. But you're gonna see that there is a verse four, but there's absolutely nothing written behind it. It goes from verse three to four with nothing to verse five. Well, verse four tells us about this but it was omitted from most Bibles, why? Because it was not in the earliest manuscripts and was apparently added later by a scribe to explain this story. Another thing that you may have noticed is how I used the term legend regarding the stirring of this pool that it was done by an angel and there were healing powers within these pools because that's exactly what it was. It was a legend. And if you doubt that it is a legend, then I would ask you, does this really sound like something to you that our God would do? Would he make sick people race one another in order to be made well, in order to be healed? I don't think so. Even so, this legend drew large crowds, hundreds, even thousands, in fact, so many came that the Romans had these porticos built in order to provide shelter for all the invalids who were waiting for the water to stir. And they dedicated the pool and they dedicated these porticos to, to the worship of the Roman god, the healing Roman god known as Asclepius. But please don't get in your mind that this was some kind of a nice place, like some kind of a Roman bath spa, because it wasn't. It was full of of, of very sick people. It was full of the blind and the lame, the crippled, people who were paralyzed with withered up body parts. This was a place where hundreds upon hundreds of pitiful human beings were lying around in various states of physical and emotional and mental despair. Hour after hour, day after day, they waited for the water to be stirred or rippled or bubbled, and then when that happened, out of their desperation and their hope, this mass of humanity, they would would come to life and they would race one another to see who could get in first. Can you imagine the kind of pitiful sight that was going on there. And while you are imagining all of these sick and crippled people dragging themselves to the water, I want you to also think about the emotional atmosphere that this would have created. I mean, every one of those invalids had the same hope for a cure. It was a hope that was based upon getting into the water before the next guy did. And each invalid spent hours and days fuming about how they could beat the rest of them into the water. Everybody was focused on my needs. Everybody was focused on my personal healing. Well, John tells us that lying around these porticos in this throng of people was a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Now, please understand, At 38 years of age, he was already longer than the average lifespan of a human being at that time. Can you imagine how many races in this bubbling pool that this guy had lost over almost four decades? He was probably born with deformed legs. Perhaps he was in an accident when he was a child. We don't know this for sure, but his condition and this pitiful uh, comment. Uh, competition that was going on around the pool. Well, that was his life. That's pretty much what he knew. So when Jesus had learned how long this man had laid there, he made a point to go up and talk to him. And he presented to ask him, he, he, he proceeded to ask him a question that I'm sure he had never been asked before. Jesus said, do you want to get well? And you know, you and I might think, well, what kind of question is that? Of course he wants to be well. Of course he wants to be healed. Why else would he be laying around this horrible place? Why else would he lay here on this starting line of this pitiful race that goes on day after day after day? But you've got to understand something, and I've said this before. Jesus never asked a question he didn't already know the answer to. His purpose for answer, asking people questions was to make people think. And when they thought, it revealed their true heart. And for proof of this principle, all you have to do is look at this man's response. I mean, this invalid didn't say, yes, yes, I do want to be healed more than anything else in the world. Instead, he says, I think while pointing a finger at all the other people laying around that pool, it's their fault that I'm not already healed. The bitterness that had built up in him over the past 38 years spilled out in his response. So just as planned, Jesus' question scored a direct hit on this man's heart. And the way I read it, Jesus kind of rebuked the man's self-centered response. Jesus didn't say, you poor man, I can't believe that these people treated you this way. No, Jesus basically ignored the man's finger that was pointed at his peers, and he pointed one right back at him, and he said, you rise. You take up your bed. You walk. It was his way of saying, this isn't about blaming other people. This is about you doing what I am commanding you to do right now. Well, John says right after Jesus issued his command, even before the man responded, Jesus healed him, healed him powerfully. I want you to think about for a minute. The Lord recreated this man's body because you have to understand after 38 years, there would be no muscle. There would be no tendons, no ligaments remaining. Everything would have atrophied long ago. Nothing was capable of working. His lower body was essentially dead. But Jesus completely recreated it. New muscles, new tendons, new ligaments, new joints, maybe even new bones. And it wasn't done partially. And it wasn't done gradually. Jesus spoke and he became a new creation. And not only did Jesus recreate his body, but he redirected his will. Jesus told him to do something that he was completely incapable of doing. His mind hadn't commanded those legs to move in four decades. So, this was obviously a miracle on all different kinds of levels. And before we go any further, I want to talk just a moment about miracles. What would you say a miracle is? I found a great definition. Herschel Hobbes defines a miracle as an act of God contrary to natural law as human beings understand it, but not contrary to natural law as God understands it in which he performs in accord with his benevolent will and redemptive purpose. Hobbes goes on to say that mankind knows that that science has discovered some of God's natural laws, but not all of them. And that, that really makes sense to me. I think that's a very, very good point. Think of it this way. The 20th century was probably the greatest period of scientific discovery, and it has fueled more change than I believe in all of history. There are things that are commonplace today that would be considered miracles even 100 years ago. In fact, we speak of research when in truth we should more accurately speak of Revelation. Why? Because these laws, are, the, these laws are known to God from the beginning of time. And he reveals them to us as he chooses and when he chooses. Who can say what laws of, of higher dimension are known to God that are still unknown to us? I mean, science is discovering miracle cures, it seems like, all the time but they do so as God provides them with the knowledge and the revelation to do so. So if humans can do what we do in medicine today, think about how silly it is for somebody to ask a question if God could really have healed this man. If God created the universe, which we know he did, he can do anything he wants. He has the power to do anything he wants, including healing anyone that he wants. In verse 17, Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. British writer George MacDonald points out that this scripture gives us profound insight into the Lord's miracles because it tells us that Jesus did instantaneously what the father is always doing over time. For example, in nature, according to the laws that God has set up, he slowly would turn water into wine, and yet Jesus did it instantly. In nature, the Father slowly heals broken bodies, but Jesus healed broken bodies immediately. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread from sowing all the way to harvest, but Jesus multiplied bread instantly in his own hands. As he said in our text, my father is indeed always at work, always doing the miraculous. It's just that Jesus sped up the process. In any case, Jesus did an amazing jaw-dropping miracle that day under that portico. And I imagine that the people who were there who were lying around this man and saw this happen, they would have been absolutely stunned. For the first time, I think, in their lives, they would have forgotten completely about the healing waters in this pool and the angel behind it. Listen to verse 9. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. But you know, I like to think that the man did a lot more than that. I think he probably skipped. And then I think he probably ran, and if possible, I think he may have even done cartwheels. I mean, can you imagine it? What would you have done? This was such an amazing miracle. After 38 years of walking around on your hands, what would you do? But before anybody could say amen, thank you, Jesus, before anybody would clap their hands with a round of applause, John says something that kind of drops a wet blanket on the whole thing. He says in verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. If we could attach a soundtrack to me reading that scripture, it would be one of those dum-dum-dum moments. Evil is released into the world. Because anyone who knew anything about the Pharisees understood the significance of that very simple statement. It is a statement that foreshadows a bizarre twist in this story. You see in verse 10, there is a a scene change. The man is carrying his bedroll home and he was scolded by the Jewish religious leaders. They rebuked him for carrying something on the Sabbath. This kind of thing was strictly forbidden by their tradition, while yet perfectly acceptable by the law of Moses, given this particular situation. But his response shows that the miracle that he experienced was only skin deep. What I mean is that his body might have been made different, but on the inside, this man was still a self-focused blamer. He said, hey, it's not my fault. The man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So there was no change of heart in this former invalid. I'm talking about the kind of change that comes from this inner healing that we receive, that we experience when we ask and invite Jesus into our hearts and lives to be our Savior and Lord. In a very real sense, inside this guy was still a cripple, spiritually speaking. But he wasn't alone in this ailment because these Pharisees, well, let me tell you, they were just as bad. They were so focused on their interpretation of the law that they were blind to the miracle that God had just done. I mean, their words found in verse 12 would be comical if they weren't so appalling. Who is this fellow Who told you to pick up your bedroll and walk? In other words, who is this healer who told you, all they're thinking about, who told you to break the Sabbath? I think that any normal person would have felt at least a little bit intrigued by this man's instant healing, but not these Pharisees. They bypassed the opportunity to celebrate the grace of God in order to ferret out a potential threat to their authority, or maybe more importantly, a threat to their control. It would kind of be like if you had a neighbor living next door to you who had been paralyzed in a car accident from the neck down 30 years ago, and one Sunday morning, you're woken up at 530 with the sound of a lawnmower going on from a deep and satisfying sleep. You are so annoyed, you bolt to the front door to look out and see who could be so rude as to as to wake you up with that loud noise, especially on the day of rest, and upon seeing your formerly paralyzed neighbor mowing his lawn on a riding lawnmower or walking lawnmower in perfect health, what would you say to him? Well, I'll tell you if you were a Pharisee what you'd say to him. You'd say, Richard, it is Sunday morning for crying out loud, turn that stupid thing off. So John tells us instead of looking at the the wonder, the, the miracle in which to praise, the Pharisees went on search for a troublemaker that they could censure. Verse 14 says that Jesus later came across this former invalid. And Jesus confronts him once more about his self-focus when he said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. In other words, Jesus told him no more finger pointing, no more blaming. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your school, you can't blame your culture, you can't blame your job, you are responsible. And if you continue to blatantly sin in life and disregard God, if you keep on blaming, you're gonna be far worse off in the long run than your mere physical illness. Now at this point, at this point, the man could have thanked Jesus for his external healing and he could have said, Jesus, will you heal me on the inside as well? He could have got down on those brand new knees that God had created for him and asked Jesus to forgive him for his self-centeredness. He could have asked Jesus to, to cleanse his deformed heart just like he had his deformed legs, but he didn't. Instead, verse 15 tells us that he immediately went out, talked to the Pharisees and tattled on Jesus. He was a finger pointer and blamer till the very end. Well, as I said, this miracle marks the beginning of opposition towards Jesus. And this opposition would increase over the next two years and it would ultimately lead him to a Roman cross. And this is where I see in action Sir Isaac Newton's law that we talked about earlier. From now on, Jesus who was and who is full of grace will fight an ongoing battle with this opposite reaction to his amazing grace. And so within the time that we have left this morning, I wanna talk about this opposite reaction to God's grace that we will refer to as legalism. After all, we are called to be a grace-driven church, so that means that we fight this battle on a daily basis. What is legalism? Well, legalism is holding yourself, or worse yet, holding someone else, not to a biblical standard, but to some man-made standard of rules of righteousness. Now, you may be thinking, well, Pastor David... That really doesn't apply to us. We may lust on occasion or envy or tell a little white lie, but we aren't legalists. We don't sin like those Pharisees did. But in truth, we do. And we do it more frequently than you think. The list of regulations that we impose on other people is very long, though not always so obvious. We are legalistic about the translation or version of the Bible that some people carry or the way people wear or dye their hair, or by the clothes that they choose to wear, or by whether or not they have tattoos, or or anything else that doesn't fit into our little personal boundary or box of acceptability. We are legalistic about whether people like praise choruses or rather than hymns, or how they choose to educate their children. We are legalistic about whether people raise their hands to God in worship or whether they don't. We are legalistic about what political party people are affiliated with, what news network they watch, or even who they voted for in the last election. I could go on and on because the list of things that we use to judge people's spirituality or lack thereof is almost endless. Legalism is a big problem in our day and age and has always been, it is nothing new. And if we let grace drive us as a people and as a church, we are going to have to accept the fact that there will be times when we will face challenges through the opposition of grace through legalism. And that means that you and I need to understand it, and in order to be the church and the people that Jesus calls us to be. So with that in mind, here are some basic facts about legalism that we need to talk about. And the first one I touched on earlier, legalism does not hold people accountable to biblical standards, but to man-made rules. Listen, Jesus never shied away from calling sin for what it is it is sin. You can sugarcoat it all you want. You can make excuses for it. You can say it doesn't apply to this day, but he called sin for what it is sin. And as I already pointed out, he told this invalid to turn from his sin of bitterness and blaming. He told the woman who was caught in adultery to go and to sin no more. He drove people out of the temple and charged them with the sin of turning God's house of prayer into some kind of a marketplace. Well, it's important that we follow Jesus' example because when we don't hold to a biblical standard, what happens is grace grace morphs into a license to sin. Plus, if we truly understand the grace that God has bestowed on us, we will naturally take sin seriously. Here's the deal. Legalism tends to embrace rules that we have made up. Ourselves, or our family, or our church, or our culture. And some have been handed down for generations. Many are based on one person's conviction that he or she had a need to enforce on other people while it might not have any biblical basis to it whatsoever. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But here's a second force, a second fact about this force that opposes God's grace. Legalism easily becomes harassment. There's an old saying that says misery loves company. That is certainly true when it comes to this topic of legalism. Like the Pharisees who harassed harassed this this healed invalid for carrying his bedroll, legalists tend to become joy stealers or joy killers. They seem to take pleasure in burdening people with endless lists of their laws. In his book, Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a missionary couple who experienced this aspect of legalism and it happened in, of all places, out in the mission field and from fellow missionaries. The criticism that this couple got from their peers was so petty and so unbelievably small-minded that they ended up returning to the States and gave up their calling to be career missionaries. Believe it or not, it was all over a jar of a sinful substance that we know as peanut butter. The particular place where they were sent to serve the Lord didn't have access to peanut butter. And this particular family happened to love peanut butter. So rather creatively, they made arrangements with their friends stateside to send them peanut butter so that they could eat it with some of their meals. I suppose that, uh, the, that the, uh, the, well, I, what I'm gonna say is that the people around them did not like that idea. They, they didn't like it. They 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 uh, didn't know that this was fair or this was right. It was a mark of lack of spirituality that you shouldn't have peanut butter with your meals. I think I guess what I'm trying to say is I suppose that, that it went something like this: We believe that since we can't get peanut butter here in this land, that we should give up peanut butter for the cause of Jesus Christ. So. On the basis, one basis of spirituality was bearing their cross with, of all things, living life without peanut butter. Well, this young family didn't buy into that line of thinking. They thought it was ridiculous. They kept getting regular shipments of peanut butter stateside. They didn't flaunt it. They just enjoyed it in the privacy of their home, but the pressure continued to intensify. You would expect adult missionaries, people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus to be big enough to let other people eat what they wanna eat, right? Wrong. The legalism was so petty, the pressure got so intense, this exclusive treatment that they were experiencing became so unfair that it finished them off. They had enough. Unable to continue against this mounting pressure, they packed it in and they left disillusioned and they left cynical. We think, how could somebody be so petty? But let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Have you, have I ever been so petty about something else? Have you ever harassed a fellow brother and sister in Christ because they didn't measure up to your standard regarding something? Have you ever criticized someone over what I would call a non-essential? Something that is not spelled out in the Word of God? We've gotta remember that it's possible, it's impossible, excuse me, to be grace-driven and to be driven by legalism at the same time. Harassment and grace do not go together. Well, here's the third fact. Legalism always leads to hypocrisy. Because here's the deal, legalism sets a standard that no one can attain. So legalists do the next best thing, they pretend. A great example of this is the apostle Peter. Paul talks about this in the second chapter of Galatians. Paul says that Peter came to Antioch and he embraced the Gentile Christians there enjoying meals with him. But this later what he writes in Galatians two twelve through 15. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, those who believed the Gentiles in order to be saved by God's grace had to be circumcised. The other Jews joined him in in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ." So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In essence, Paul is saying, Peter, you are criticizing Gentiles for the unkosher food that they eat, but I smell ham on your own breath. Get out! Cut the act, quit playing games. We know that we are saved by grace and we are not saved by man-made laws. So if legalists can't get away with pretending to follow their laws, then they take another hypocritical tactic. They choose to find loopholes. For example, the Jewish law said that traveling was forbidden on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees built up these little laws that, that specifically designed what it meant to travel or not to travel on the Sabbath. They came up with a law that said one could only walk around a half a mile on the Sabbath and not be sinful. This was the limit of the legal Sabbath day's journey. So based upon that, they created a loophole. On Friday afternoon, before the Sabbath started, they would mark off a Sabbath day's journey and place a plate of food there and build a little shelter around it. If their food was in that place, they could technically consider that place to be their home. And if it was their home, then guess what? They weren't traveling, no matter how far away it was. Can you say loophole? If they set out enough plates of food and enough places that was a Sabbath day's journey apart from the other, they could have walked the entire Roman Empire on the Sabbath had they wanted to. They did this thing because legalists have no concept of the intent of the law. They are only interested in the letter of the law. And when you are only interested in the letter of the law, then you are really only interested in how you can find a loophole in the law. It's something that came up frequently when I was a young adult pastor at Phoenix First Assembly. Particularly whenever we talked about dating, when we talked about human sexuality, our responsibility to our human sexuality as followers of Jesus Christ. And often I would be asked on the side after services by young men, how far is too far? Is this too far? Is that too far? Give me specifics. What can I do and what can I do? Literally, I would be asked that by young men. And and this is nothing more than immature legalism. Legalism that is looking for some kind of a loophole. When we know regarding our sexuality that the standard is holiness, it is purity, it is honoring God, not just with your life, but with your physical body, purposely and intentionally fleeing temptation. It's not hypothetically or hypocritically, excuse me, looking for some kind of a loophole. Well, here's one more fact that we must understand if we are to remain grace-driven. Legalism is heresy. And that may sound extreme to you, but as I inferred to a moment ago, legalism places man-made rules of standard of conduct upon people that does not exist in the scriptures. I mean, these guys criticized Jesus for saying that he was equal to God. But yet when they made up their laws, They said that the laws that they created were equal to God's written word. So can you see that they were doing exactly what they were accusing Jesus of doing? Legalism does this. It equates man's rules with God's standards, whether it be clothing, whether it be hairstyles or music preferences, even what you do or don't do on a Sunday. I'm reminded of a story of a pastor who woke up, lived back in the east, woke up one morning to find that a horrible snowstorm had come the night before, it would have been possible for him to shovel his long driveway and be able to get to church on time. What's interesting is the man's house was right near a creek, and this creek ran all the way two miles upstream, past the church, he to the church and past it. So this pastor wouldn't get up. He went in his house, he got his ice skates, and he decided to skate to church that morning. And get this, when he arrived, albeit a little later than normal, the elders of the church completely ignored his commitment to be there on that Sunday for a worship service. And instead, they were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Sabbath day. After the service, they actually had a special meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not be here at all. Finally, one of the elders asked him, did you enjoy it? And that's when the preacher said no. So then the board decided it was all right, as long as he didn't enjoy the journey. Now we laugh at that, but whenever we elevate our own rules and preferences such that they are equal to God's written word, it is wrong. It's playing God. Let me put it another way. Whenever we say our standards of behavior get us closer to God, we're denying our need for God's grace. Paul confronted this heresy of legalism in the church in Galatia. He wrote to them in Galatians 1, 6 through 10, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Listen, Righteousness doesn't come from the law. No amount of legalism can produce the kind of holiness and righteousness that God requires, and it certainly will not produce perfection. If anyone could have done that, it would have been the Pharisees. By all outside observation, they lived perfectly in accordance with the law, and yet Jesus called them what? He called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but he said, inside you are dead. Because living as a perfect legalist does not do anything to change you on the inside. It does absolutely nothing to change your heart. You can be the very best person in the world. You can unselfishly give of your time and your resources and effort to help all kinds of people. You can be the best mom or dad in the world and raise perfect little angels. You may never have a harsh word to say about anybody, but those things will never save you. They might make you a great legalist, but just like the rest of us great legalists, none of us are perfect. And so when you impose your unattainable legalistic standard on other people, you're gonna to have to deal with a holy God who looks with displeasure on what it is that you are doing. Can you see why this is so harmful to you and others? It's particularly harmful on new believers. When we try to mold them into into who we are, when they need to discover who they are in Christ Jesus on their own. Yes, we disciple them, we teach them the fundamental truths of the word, but they need to become who God wants them to be. And they need to do what God is trying, they need to experience what God is trying to accomplish in them. What it does, it devalues God's grace. It sets people up for failure because our eyes, they're focused on the wrong thing. Scott, will you guys come forward? Help me to start closing this down. As I've been thinking about this past week in the context of us celebrating the 4th of July and our independence as a nation and as a people, I am reminded that legalism is nothing but a form of bondage. It really is. It keeps people in a straitjacket of unattainable expectations. And when I say that, I do not mean for one second that God puts you in a straitjacket. What I mean is that we put people in straitjackets. So we've got to be set free from legalism, just like Jesus set us free from sin. This morning, I believe it to be very appropriate that we remember the moment that Christ set us free as we participate in Holy Communion together. And when you arrived, you should have received a communion emblem out in the foyer. If you didn't, you can get up from your seat right now, run out and get one, and come back and join us. One of the things that we must remember about when Jesus bore our sin on that Roman cross is to, is that he not only offered us forgiveness of sin, but freedom, freedom not to be bound by sin any longer. And so if that's the case, why would we then want to be bound up by legalism? And I guess the better question is, why would we even allow that to happen to us? If the Son, Christ Jesus, has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen? So this morning, as Jesus commanded, we are going to remember what he did for us on the cross through his crucifixion, through his death, and ultimately through his resurrection. And it's a time when we don't just remember that, but it's a time when we celebrate it, and it is a time where we offer thanksgiving for it. Because without Christ's sacrifice, we'd be lost. We would have no eternal future. The hope of being in God's presence for eternity would be gone. But Jesus gave it all. He took every sin, past, present, and future that's ever been committed or ever will be committed, he bore it on his body on that cross and we can now be free from sin and secure in Christ Jesus, and this is what we remember during this time of communion. And I believe that it is important, and I've said this before, that even though we do this every month, that this should never be viewed as as some kind of a ritual. This should never be viewed as some kind of a routine that we just go through. Instead, it should always be viewed as a time where we have intimacy with God. It is a time for us to, to get transparent with Him, which is the only way we can be with God, as we remember what it is that He accomplished on our behalf. And when I say get transparent, I mean that we must make sure that our hearts are right before we partake in this sacred and holy time of communion. And if our hearts are not right, it is time for us to ask for forgiveness for those things that are wrong. It is a time, as I said, for self-examination. It's spelled out in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 29. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, So in order to avoid that, he says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is the time when, as the word says, we must examine ourselves. Uh, Do we have any unconfessed sin? Are we harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards another person? Are we carrying around an attitude that is contrary of what God would want us to have? Are our hearts in alignment with the Lord and what it is he is trying to accomplish in our individual lives? Or are we doing our own thing? Are we ignoring the voice of God? Most importantly, are we saved? Have we received the salvation that Jesus Christ offers? If not, this is a time. When everyone in this place, anyone who is watching online, this is a time where we can make things right. It's a time when we can confess our sin before God, time to ask Jesus into our heart, so that none of us need to partake of communion and as the scriptures say, in an unworthy manner. I wanna prepare our hearts as we enter into this most important moment We're gonna have a moment of silence where the only thing you're going to hear is the continued music playing behind me. It's a time for you to pray to God in your own way, in your own words. That's why I don't pray out loud during this time any longer, because I think it's a distraction. I think we all need to pray ourselves. ask him to forgive you of any sin in your life, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you are harboring unforgiveness for someone else, ask for forgiveness for that, and leave here with the intent of making things right between you and that person. And furthermore, ask God to reveal himself to you today in maybe a new and fresh way that he never has before. And let's remove all these obstacles that potentially are in our way from God doing that today. Anything that would prevent us from partaking in communion this morning in an unworthy way, let's take care of it during this time of prayer. Let's bow our heads. You've read our hearts. You've heard our words spoken. We ask for your forgiveness. The times that we have fallen short of what you would have us be. Father, help us to understand the the importance of this moment and going into it with a clear heart and clear conscience, knowing things are right between the two of us, you and me. Thank you for the salvation that is offered to us through Christ Jesus and his precious blood. Today, as we participate in this communion and these emblems that represent his body and his blood, Lord God, let us never forget the power of that moment the death, the burial, and ultimately the resurrection that brings us new life, that you defeated death and the grave and sin, and we thank you for that, and therefore now we can as well. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time where we remember such an important day and how it's changed our lives forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never used the disposable communion emblems, there is a cellophane on the top which exposes the bread and beneath that is a foil and if you peel back will expose the juice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he had his last supper with his disciples, after Jesus had taken the bread and broken it, he gave thanks and he said that this bread represented his body It would soon be broken for them because he knew he was going to the cross. He knew that he would be beaten beyond recognition. He knew that he was going to die, but he knew that he was going to be resurrected. And he said, every time you you do this, every time you participate in this together, remember me. Remember my broken body. So as you partake of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of your Lord and Savior. You may eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. So that whenever you drink of this, he said, do so in remembrance of me. And as you drink this juice this morning that represents the blood of Christ, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the Lamb that poured down from his body. It is that blood that cancels, that wipes away, that cleanses your and my sins. And we thank Jesus for that. You may drink of the juice. Would you stand and sing with us, please? Your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that it is the cleansing agent, it's what atones for our sin. Thank you that you have washed us white. Thank you that you have saved our life. Thank you that we are promised eternity in the very presence of God. What a gift! we thank you for it today. Lord, I also thank you for your word. We see in the life of Christ everyday moments that teach us, that show us how we are to live our lives as followers of Christ. Let us not become people bound up by legalism, but people who would live our life in freedom and understand what the grace of God is about. pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would go with us guiding and directing our steps places we go the, the things we do the conversations that we have Lord that those conversations would be intended to build people up and not tear them down That the light of Christ would be so so powerful within us that it would be seen in this very dark world to the point where opportunities would open for us to share your goodness. And God, when those opportunities happen, I pray for the courage to walk through those doors boldly, knowing that you'll give us the things to say. Help us to encourage others to the cross, to show them what a life lived for Christ is all about. Pray that anyone here today or watching online who do not know you, Father, if they've not prayed the prayer of salvation, that they would ask you to come into their heart acknowledging, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, you are the only way to the Father, receiving your forgiveness, allowing you to cleanse them and become the Lord of their life, and then help us, Lord, as a church, to come alongside of them, to disciple them through the word of God on what this Christian journey is all about. Pray that you'll give them the courage today to take that step of faith and to receive the salvation that only you can offer. Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that you would just guide our steps. You would give us opportunities to, to show your goodness to others. Pray that you would keep us safe until we gather together again. Keep us safe from sickness, COVID, any other disease or illness. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. I pray that you would be with our, our gathering this afternoon and in our, on our property. We're gonna have a lot of people from this community. And Father, I just pray that, that everybody who comes today, would see that the men and women of High Point don't just love their country, but we love our neighbors and we love Jesus. And that that would come screaming through above all other things, and that you would receive praise and honor and glory for whatever it is that we do, no matter how big, no matter how small, that we do it because we care about people and we wanna direct them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So be with our time together this afternoon. Keep us safe until we gather together again. And Father, help us to be the men and women of God that you called us to be and that you need us to be every single day. Let us not shy away from the times that you give us to share your goodness with others. Help us to be strong and bold in our faith. Let it come through in everything that we do. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.